According to one military historian, there are three key factors in military disaster. Number one, a poor mission to begin with. Number two, successful enemy action. And number three, degeneration of command and control structure. I don't know if any of that is true. I'm not a military historian or expert, and I don't play one on TV either. But it does make me think, when I think about a mission, and I think about Jesus, who was sent to earth not on a military mission, it was far more than that, but he was sent to earth on a mission. And in John chapter 17, which is where we're going to be this morning, the 17th chapter of the gospel According to John, Jesus prays and he prays to his Father and he is talking about his mission. And it provides quite the contrast to those three. A poor mission to begin with, successful enemy action, degeneration of command and control structures. Because with Jesus and what we hear from him in John 17, number one, the mission couldn't be stronger. Number two, the opposing forces don't stand a chance. And number three, the command and control structures are sure. In other words, Jesus comes to earth on mission and he succeeds. And not only does Jesus succeed, he succeeds in carrying out his mission, which is a rescue mission. And he rescues successfully everyone who is believing then and everyone who would ever trust in him. And so here we are today as believers in Christ, and we're going to learn about Jesus' rescue mission, and we're going to learn even on how he came here to rescue sinners like us, and he did so successfully. John 17 is so interesting because you first have Jesus praying for himself, then you have him praying for his immediate disciples. And then we're going to see today, he broadens that to include everyone who would ever believe. So Jesus prays for himself, Jesus prays for his disciples, and then he prays for everyone who would ever be a disciple. And it is is quite frankly, I don't know of a better word to use than it is astounding. It is amazing. It's referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's all about him before he goes to the cross in chapter 17. He's about ready to go there and he's rehearsing all that he has done and all that he will do before his father in prayer so disciples can hear. And it is absolutely astounding. It's meant to, to encourage believers like you and like me to encourage us with the reality that Jesus didn't come here and try his best. Because that's kind of how we think of it sometimes. Well, the Father sends the Son, and Jesus really gave it a good college try. Doesn't always work out. Oh, well. No, that's not the sense you get from John 17. There are whole religious institutions that think it's a sin to have assurance. 
what you get in John 17 is assurance like you would not even be able to come up with in your own imagination. It's meant to encourage, it's meant, meant to bolster, meant to lift you up, meant to help you even as you face hard things. That Jesus isn't a Savior who makes people savable. Jesus is a Savior who saves. It's amazing. So let's go ahead and look at his prayer for himself. Just by way of review, I won't read the whole thing, even though I'm super tempted to. And then we'll do a little review, and then we'll move on to, to some new things and look at the, the, the remaining part of John 17. But notice in John 17, in those opening verses where he prays to his Father, he says in verse 2, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, Father gives to the Son, and the Son gives those given to Him by His Father. He gives them eternal life. And then in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work. I'm using the synonym mission today that you gave me to do. So it's, it's sure, it's definite, it's trustworthy. Interestingly enough, people who don't like this and who don't want to affirm the supernatural are going to say, there's no way Jesus could have said these things because it hadn't actually happened yet. What's interesting is Jesus uses this method of speaking quite often. Because of all that I have done and because of all that I have accomplished, there is no reason on earth or in heaven to conclude that it would be anything other than the plan being carried out. Then Jesus prays for his disciples, and we won't read the whole prayer, but let's just begin in verse 6. I have manifested, I have revealed, I've made clear your name, he says to his Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, so those 11 in particular, in particular they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And he just goes on to explain this in amazing, amazing ways. But the underlying reality is, they were yours. You had a plan. You had a purpose, a redemptive purpose. And you gave them to me. You entrusted them to me. And I'm playing my role in the mission. And I have been faithful and will be faithful to the very end. And I will succeed. And it will lead to them being given life because of my work. And then again, I I just can't hardly bring myself to do this, but we're going to move on now to some new material down to verse 17. In verse 17 it says, Jesus praying to His Father, sanctify them, In the truth, your word is truth. Jesus prays to his Father, sanctify them. Them being, he's still praying for the eleven, his disciples. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. It sounds awesome. I memorized this a long time ago. Lots of you have it memorized. It's short. Sanctify them with the truth, your word is truth. 
But as I like to say so many times, and I've discovered that then you start digging in, you're reading the Bible, it's, it's usually better than you even thought. For Jesus to pray to his Father that he would sanctify them with the truth, your word is truth, what's, what's that about? Well, we have to go before and we have to go after to actually understand what he's getting at. Remember, earlier in verse 11, he prayed to his Father and he said, Holy Father. He's using the exact same words. Sanctified Father. It's the word for holy. It's the word for distinct. It's the word for different. So he's saying, he's picking up on that same thing. Sanctified, holy father, distinct, unique father, the one who keeps your promises like no one else does. Sanctified father, holy father, now I'm going to pray for them, those who belong to me, those who've been given to me by you. I want you, sanctified father, holy father, to sanctify them. To set them apart, make them unique and distinct. And how is that going to happen? That's going to happen by your word. Your word is truth. Getting some traction here. And he's going to build on it more and talk more about sanctify and holiness. And it gets even better. I'm going to want to preach John 17 next week. Same stuff. I won't, but I'm going to want to. Sanctify them, set them apart, make them distinct like you are. In some ways. With the truth, your word is truth. What we've been seeing in John as we study and go through this book, how Jesus uses word, revelation, manifest. He's using it to refer to himself. He's using it to refer to the revelation of the gospel, the the work of Christ, the person of Christ. He's not using it in a generic sense, like 66 books of the Bible, even though that would be true. It would be true that the word of God generically sanctifies. But in John's usage, in the way Jesus has been speaking, he's using word for, for himself, for his work, for the, the, the redemptive purposes of God, for gospel truth. And that's how he uses truth as well. Remember in chapter 14, I am the truth. He uses truth again and again for gospel truth, truth about himself. And so I'm going to encourage you to read it that way. I think that's the way it's intended to be read. Holy Father, sanctify them, make them distinct, make them separate. How? Through the gospel is how. Through me and my work and my my atonement and my resurrection. That's how they're going to be set apart, unique, different kinds of people. It's through the gospel. I'm fully convinced that's what he means. It's not just in a generic sense. What sets these apart is the work of Jesus. And he's going to elaborate and say this includes all believers. I mean, what makes us distinct, separate, different, sanctified, holy as believers is the gospel. It's not our shared like like interests. It's not our shared like hobbies. It's not our shared like dress code. It's not our shared like musical preferences, food preferences, style, whatever it might be. No, what what makes us different, and sometimes Christians have gotten this messed up, what makes us distinct and unique, belonging to the unique God, is the work of the unique God's Son. That's what makes us set apart, unique, different. The gospel does that. The work of Christ does that. And if you're not totally believing me yet, you hopefully will. 
Because he's not done talking about this distinct, holy, sanctified reality. He's going to keep talking about it. So hang in there. But for now, let's see what, what sets them apart is the word of truth. It's the gospel is what does that. How about verse 18? As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. They're going to be commissioned. He's even speaking in past tense. They're going to be commissioned. They're going to be sent out. And what's going to make them stand out and be different? They wear weird, really weird clothes. No. They all like all the same things. No. What's going to make them different when they're sent out? And then how about what makes their message different is that it's gospel. The truth about Christ. The Word. The living Word who gives, we see in John again and again and again. The theme has been eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. It's in Him. That is what they're... That's what makes them distinct and it's what's going to make their message distinct. They're gospel people. It's what they believe. It's what they promote. It's not their conservative politics, can I say. It's not their style. It's not their diet. It's not their lifestyle. It's the gospel word of salvation that makes them distinct. And that's what they'll be missionaries with. How about verse 19? Oh, here we go. This is, this is worth the price of admission. I hope we charge you a lot of money to get in today. Verse 19. As for their sake, I consecrate, ESV translates it, but it's the word holy. It's the word set apart. It's the word sanctify. I wish they wouldn't have just chosen all different words because it comes with, it's the exact same Greek word. As for their sake, Jesus says about himself, I consecrate, I make myself holy. I, dis- I make myself distinct. I sanctify myself, as translations say. So I want their sanctification to happen, for them to be distinct as gospel people. Well, for their sake, I sanctify myself. I make myself holy. Keep going that they also may be sanctified in truth. Same exact word. You don't need to know original languages to understand the Bible, so I'm not trying to go there. Hagiadzo is the word, because some of you like to know that. Hagiadzo, I don't know where it comes into English, other than uh, if you're into literature. Uh, hagiography. You all use that on a regular basis, don't you? <laughs> Hagiography is where people write biographies and they only say the good stuff. Okay? They, they, they make people out to be saints. saints. Saint means holy one, by the way. So they, they either tell only the true rights, a nice stuff that we would all like, or they even sometimes in hagiography, they make stuff up. And so this person seems to be like this wonderful, amazing, sinless saint. That's hagiography. Instead of just telling the good stuff and the bad stuff and trying to be objective about it. So, don't need to know that for the sermon. But hagiadzo. Holy Father. Hagiadzo. Distinct Father. And the people are going to be hagiadzo. They're going to be distinct and unique, sanctified because of the gospel. And then Jesus says, I sanctify myself so that they will be sanctified. 
He's repeating himself. He's bringing this, all these pieces together to make a huge, extraordinary point that the way that this is going to happen, that they're going to benefit, is because of me. Because of what I do. Your sanctification, your distinctness because of the gospel, your uniqueness because of the gospel, so that you can be accepted by a distinct God, is not because of what you do. It's because of what Jesus did. Jesus sanctified himself so that you would be sanctified. That is mind-blowing. That's what makes Christianity unique, by the way. Because think about how many times I'm, I've just got to do it, I've got to try, and I've got to get after it, and I've got to get busy, because after all, I'm a Christian. And Christians, we're sanctified people. And we look down our big noses, at least I do, we look down our big noses at people who aren't like us. No, Christianity is, we're sanctified. The reason we're different is because Christ sanctified Himself. He did all the work. There's a huge, huge, important reality there. This is the key to our distinction. Not self-sanctified, that's a different religion, but sanctified because of Christ being sanctified. One writer puts it this way in making an observation, none but this faithful high priest could be bold enough to declare in complete honesty and truth, for their sake I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified in truth. In other words, who in their right mind would ever say that? Unless he's the one we've been learning about in the gospel account. Wow. John Flavel, you've all been reading him too from the 1600s, no doubt. Profound Christian thinker makes this observation. His sanctifying himself for our sake speaks the strength of his love and largeness of his heart to poor sinners. Thus to set himself wholly and entirely apart for us so that what he did and suffered must all of it have a respect and relation to us. He did not, when consecrated for us, live a moment, do an act, or speak a word, but it had some tendency to promote the great design of our salvation. My favorite part is this part. He was only and holy and always. I wish we still talked like that sometimes. He was only and holy, with a W, He was only and holy and always doing your work when consecrated for your sakes. His incarnation respects you. Jesus says, I sanctified myself so that they would be sanctified. It's awesome. I got kind of worked up there. Preaching is such a weird thing. I would never do this in my wildest dreams. I I have to remind the Lord, I didn't sign up for this. Who does this? Who just stands up there and like, you know, does this? Crazy people? Probably. It's what makes Jesus different. It's what makes... True, and there are lots of forms that we've messed up, true Christianity different. Oh, and by the way, those of you who really like nice and neat theological categories, 
I'm, I'm on your side, I'm with you. But don't, don't think of sanctification maybe like you normally think of it. Like we have justification and we have sanctification. You're declared righteous and then you live a righteous life. And justification, sanctification. Sanctification is used in different ways. It's used in that way. But it's, it's being used here in, in, a, in a more generic kind of way. Inclusive of salvation. What makes you distinct, period, is that you belong to Jesus. Your holiness that makes you acceptable before a holy God is what Jesus did. I have two more 17th century quotes and I'm going to skip them because you just don't like, it doesn't look like you're feeling it today. And because the words of Jesus are even better than the, John, the, the words of John Flavel. Now he prays for all believers in verse 20. So now we move to verse 20. And he prays for all believers. How about verse 20 where it says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's why we can go back to the other stuff and actually see that we're included in that too. Jesus is saying, I'm not only praying for these who are alive now, but for all who will believe even through their testimony. I'm going to pray for them also. Sometimes I like to give you a hard time and kind of heckle you and say, I know you're always looking for yourself in the Bible and remember the Bible's first and foremost about God. And... But this is the verse you've been waiting for, <laughs> right? We are in there. And thankfully we're in there because of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So yeah, he, he, he's not the distant Savior, he's the caring Savior who knows all things and he's successful in his mission and he's not only praying for those, he's praying for everyone who would ever believe. Verse 21 says, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. First glance, you think practical unity. And we better get busy getting along. And you know, we could get busy at getting along. And there are other passages in the Bible that emphasize practical unity, and we should be able to get along, and we should get along, and it's important that we have unity. But I don't think that's what he's getting at here. That they all would be one. The ones I'm with now, the eleven, and those, all those who will believe even through their message that they would all be one. And not only that, this is an, an imperfect unity, which is what we experience on the practical side. No, just like you and I are one, Father, perfect unity. And so I don't think he's asking for the practical, even though we should talk about that another Sunday. He's talking about this amazing reality that these 11 who were there with him would be united uniquely, amazingly, with all believers of all ages, even in the 21st century, and experience a kind of unity that the Father and the Son share perfectly. That's pretty cool. That's pretty wild to think about. 
all believers united. And that is true. All believers are united. Sometimes that's hard for us because we think mature Christian, immature Christian, they're worlds apart. No, if we're sanctified, ultimately because He sanctified Himself, we're actually all equal. Yeah, but they were there with Jesus. They had the experiences. They saw the extraordinary beyond what we've ever seen. Jesus' point is the power comes from Him. He's the one who sanctifies Himself. And so just as those who were there then and you're here now, one. You know, equal footing at the foot of the cross, people like to say. So believers in other countries now who look a lot different than you, believers who were in the first century who look a lot different than you, and didn't have your dental plans, think how they would have looked. Sorry, that was a little lowbrow, but... All different kinds of people. How about like Revelation chapter 5 talks about every tribe, tongue, and nation, and people who look totally different, who speak different languages, who know more, who know less. All who've trusted in the One who sanctified Himself can therefore be equally sanctified because it's not based upon what they do or know other than they know Christ. This is a prayer for unity that is absolutely realized. This is amazing. You know, lots of times people talk about building churches and we're, we're going to build our church. We're going to start a church and we're going to build our church. And, we're, and, and what we're going to do is we have, a, we have a certain demographic and we're really going to focus on this kind of person and this kind of age group and socioeconomic and it might be poor people, it might be rich people. Too oftentimes it's just the poor people, right? And so and we want them to all look like us. Because we all know it's been proven that if they look like us, they'll be, they'll be attracted to more people who look like them. And that's one great way to really grow a church. And it's just so interesting that even though that's not what Jesus is talking about, but how fundamentally contrary that would be to the way Jesus would be thinking. He's going to pray for all believers of all eras. Oh, and by the way, we've already learned he will, it'll be a mission accomplished. They will be saved. What makes them different is they're set apart because of the truth of the Word, the Gospel. That's what makes them in common, gathered together. Even think about the disciples. Let, let's, let's add Paul to the mix just for the sake of the illustration. I know he's a late bloomer, but he's going to be together, and he and Peter are going to be friends sometimes. Um, <laughs> equally apostles. Peter affirms Paul in 2 Peter, even though Paul confronted Peter for his compromises. What they had in common was what? They had Christ in common. I mean, Peter could have said, Paul, you know, if you really, you know, were like me, you'd take up fishing. I hear all godly people were former fishermen, right? And Paul would be like looking at lowbrow Peter, like, first of all, your Greek is atrocious. Um, and you know what? You could 
do yourself a favor by reading some more significant books and studying philosophy once in a while. You might put your foot in your mouth less. I'm, I'm being, I'm just caricaturing this, but totally different kinds of people, different kinds of personalities. What united them wasn't that they were the same. They were very, very, they, they wouldn't have gone on vacation together, right? They, they wouldn't have been attracted to a church that had the, the common demog- demographic. What was bringing them together was the sanctified Christ who sanctified them because of what he did, and that made them one. And that's going to then transcend all of time what unites us. I like it when people say, you know, I think there's too many cliques in the church. I'm like, awesome. Which one are you part of? (laughs) Right? If we don't have a bunch of diversity, something's probably wrong. What's to set us apart and make us unique and different that then unites us is Christ. Let's move on to verse 21. The second part of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Which we've already been talking about. Remember, though, this is a unity that's father-son unity. It's perfect unity. I don't think it's talking about practical unity. Again, that's for another time. The Bible talks about that. But what should impress the world is not that we all have the same hobbies. There are stadiums filled with people that have the same hobbies. And the world isn't that impressed. What's meant to stand out and be unique and distinct and to have some people go, that's amazing that that person from you fill in the country is with that person from you fill in the country is with that person from you fill in the country and one's a man and one's a woman and one's young and one's old. And not only that, they're affirming the same Christ that people affirmed with John Flavel. What's amazing is they all turn to the unique born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, and came to save his people from their sins. And from philosophers to fishermen, to all different kinds of people in between, they turn to him for eternal life. That actually is what should be impressive. What is it about her? I thought she was pretty smart. And then she found religion and got all into Jesus and stuff. Sometimes how it goes. Dig a little more, dig a little more. Oh, she came to believe that He is the unique Savior and trusted in Him. I thought that was only for people who weren't very smart. Oh, it's for them too. All different kinds of people. The unique holy thing that makes us distinct is we trust in Jesus. Let's move on to 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now back in verses 1 to 5, it's glory that will come, it'll be cross first and then exaltation. Suffering then exaltation is how he used glory earlier. 
I hate to break it to you, that might be the same pattern he has here. The glory that you have given me, I give to them. And they, that they may be one even as we are one. See, again, it's a perfect kind of unity. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Same gospel saves anybody who's ever going to be saved. It unites all of them. No distinction. It's not about their holiness and these people do more and these people do less. No, the, the great equalizer ends up being Christ and only Christ. Verse 24 seems to be in our passage to help explain verses 22 and 23. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Here's the great unity that's going to happen. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So I would put 22 and 23 with verse 24. Where it's all going to be actualized, if you will, and where the unity is all going to be experienced is when all those who believe are together with Him. What do you think? You think Jesus' prayer is answered? You think it will be answered? I do. And it'll be better than practical unity. I'm not saying it won't be practical. Perfect unity. Flawless unity. Remember, Jesus said earlier that he was going to leave them in chapter 14 and pray, prepare a place for them. And now he's praying for them along the same lines. Father, I want them to go and be with me where I am. And there will be this amazing, unique kind of unity that's otherwise impossible. He's praying for their glorification is the term I would use, which is something he's talked about earlier. And then we're going to wrap things up here, but you don't want to really check out yet because verse 25 is going to say a similar thing, but in a different way, but it's very rich. I want you to be encouraged by this and be gaining assurance by this. How about this for a prayer? 25. O righteous Father. Now, if you're honest and thinking, I know that's hard, it's still morning. Okay? Honest and thinking. Thinking biblically. Jesus, it sounds awesome, it sounds great, and we're going to be with Him, and this is wonderful. And then, if we only had Jesus stopping here, we wouldn't have assurance, our knees would knock. When Jesus says, Oh, righteous Father, righteous is a word that's always related to law. Human or otherwise, and here it's obviously God. Oh, law-giving, law-keeping, righteous, just Father. That's not gospel. That's not good news. And if you're a sinner, that, 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 that is a problem. If you're looking at it nakedly. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you. Yeah, the world is law-breaking. He, Jesus is in the world. And, and even though the world is using it as the system, the generic, broad, unbelieving world who's been hostile. Oh, righteous Father. The world would be, if the Father's righteous, the world be, would be what? It would be unrighteous. 
Okay, which is another word for sin. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You. Righteous Father, unrighteous world, who doesn't know Him. And Jesus says, I know You. See, this is why He's been praying with such confidence. This is why He's been living His life with such confidence before them. This is why He knows and has said that He will be raised from the dead. Because He is the righteous Son. He's the law-upholding, law-abiding, law-fulfilling Son. Oh, righteous Father, here I am amidst an unrighteous people which would think it would mean utter calamity and condemnation, which is another word related to righteous, condemnation. But I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. Remember, name is not just used in my parents named me Pat because there was a next door neighbor kid named Pat and they liked him. It's not that. Oh, righteous Father, name. It's how, how, what characterizes Him. He's righteous and altogether righteous. He's the God of law. He's the God of law giving, the law keeping. He's the, the God who fairly and justly condemns lawbreakers. And Jesus is in the midst of a law-breaking world, and yet He knows God because He's the righteous one. And not only that, you see, I made my name, your name known to them. You, the righteous God, I've made you known to them. Let's keep going. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I admit to you, I'm reading this in the light of the context of the whole book. And now I admit to you that it doesn't get any better than this. Jesus is praying for reconciliation with this righteous God who should be against us, but because of His revealing of this God to them and them coming to know who He truly is and them resting in Him, they're coming to know the love of this God. This is why Bible teachers have said, you know, it's, it's at the cross where you see God, God's righteousness, His holiness, and His love, and they kiss. Because there's reconciliation because of what Jesus does. You see this, this terrible, horrific outpouring of condemnation on the Son as if He were a law breaker, but He's the law keeper. And how does that happen? It happens because He loved us and gave Himself up for us. Not only that, it happens because the Father loved the sinful world, John 3.16, and sent His unique only begotten Son so that who would ever believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Chapter 3, verse 18, otherwise there's condemnation. It's amazing. Without the love of God shown, it would be horrific to hear Him say, O righteous Father. But it's not. Because of the work of the Son, the love of this great God shown to sinners like us. It's amazing. 
context of John 17, he's about ready to leave them. They're going to be commissioned and they're going to face hostility. He's been getting them ready for that for chapters. And now he prays so that they can hear. Here's how he prays for believers. So no matter what you face, no matter what you have to deal with, no matter how complicated or adverse or perverse it gets, if you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, you have a Savior who didn't come to try to help you get there. You have a Savior that has been given you by the Father. He has kept you faithfully according to this prayer and then entrusted you back to His Father so that you would have eternal life. It's, it, it is about assurance and security. Mission impossible. Mission accomplished. That's John 17. We should pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for reminding us that Jesus is a matchless Savior. That He doesn't call us to save ourselves. He doesn't call us to do all the right things. We're thankful that He calls us to do all the right things and then He brings fulfillment Himself. And we're thankful for forgiveness through Him. We're thankful for the love of God shown in Christ. We're thankful that one day, if we're believing in Christ, we'll be joined together with every single believer who has ever believed and experience a unique, extraordinary, perfect kind of oneness and unity that could only be done by one Savior who is none other than the Lord Jesus. Or I confess to you that there are things about John 17 I certainly don't understand and, and it's as if we're ushered into the throne room of God to be able to comprehend this unique relationship that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But what I do understand and what we do understand is you are a great God and you have great purposes and that you are successful in your purposes and we are thankful to be those who benefit from them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.